any good anthropology is necessarily simultaneously a lesson about ourselves because it puts us at a distance from our own culture. And I think that's all I can really aspire to as an artist. I can show something, I can bear witness to something, I can pose a kind of riddle, whether visual or textual or both. I can interrogate certain assumptions and I can maybe propose a different angle from which to look at a familiar situation. Welcome to the Arts for Society podcast, where we talk about how art can bring change to society. This is Anne and Aude. Today, we are proud to welcome two guests, the anthropologist Anne-Christine Taylor and the artist Julien Bismuth. During this enlightening conversation, we will discover the many correspondences that exist between art and anthropology when it comes to talking about society and cultures. Anne-Christine Taylor is a renowned French-American anthropologist specialized in Amazonian cultures. With Claude Lévi-Strauss as thesis supervisor, she and her husband Philippe Descola immersed themselves in holistic ethnographic fieldwork among the Achuar Society of Ecuador. She went to produce important work on how the Achuar perceive and inhabit history, their sociality, their understandings of psychic processes, their experiences of selfhood, and their cosmologies. Anne-Christine Taylor is a Director of Research Emeritus at CNRS, the French National Center for Scientific Research. She also worked at the Musée du Quai in Paris, where she headed the Research and Teaching Department from 2005 to 2013. Julien Bismuth is a French artist who lives and works in New York. He received his BFA in Studio Art from UCLA, and his MA in Fine Art from Goldsmiths, University of London. He was also a PhD candidate in literature at Princeton University. Through different mediums, from collage to installational performance, his practice intertwines language, writing, and images. Julien Bismuth's work and performances have been presented in several major museums, such as the Guggenheim in New York, the Centre Pompidou and Palais de Tokyo in Paris, or the Tate Modern in London. One of his recent works, which uses video and photography, is dedicated to the Piraya people who live in the Amazon rainforest. So hello, Anne-Christine, and hello, Julien. Hello. Hello. Nice to be with you. Nice to be with you. Thank you very much for being with us today. Um, so the, the first reason why we wanted to interview the two of you together is that you have a very strong common interest, which is the Amazon rainforest. Uh, so why don't we start with this? Uh, Anne-Christine, you, you are a specialist of Amazonian cultures, especially the Achuar Society of Ecuador. And it's, uh, of course, it's clearly impossible to sum up an entire career in a few words, but uh, could you tell us a bit more about your research and the ethnographic fieldwork uh, you did together with your husband, Philippe Descola? And what would you say are the key takeaways uh, from your work uh, there? Well, that's a very large question. Um, perhaps I should just start by saying, uh, referring to your comment that we have a common ground in the in Amazonia. Of course, Amazonia has always been a place of great attraction for anthropologists. 
in the early days of the discipline, Amazonian populations were considered the epitome of primitivity and as such uh, were of great scientific interest to illustrate the early stages of civilization or or the really the really the beginnings of of uh, mankind's history later on amazon still continued to attract anthropologists because of the strange features of their of their worlds and in particular of their social configurations which didn't resemble those that had been already fairly well described and modeled for other areas of the world, such as Africa or, or, or Asia. A final aspect of the allure of Amazonia for anthropologists is, of course, is that it's, in a sense, the laboratory where Levi-Strauss elaborated his theories, and given the immense prestige of, of Levi-Strauss in anthropology, that's also a strong reason. Now, as to what drew me to the Amazon, well, primarily it was issues that were of relevant scientific interest at the time, namely what makes these societies, basically, what what holds them together, given that they have very strong centrifugal tendencies. There's a lot of fissioning, division between various groups. They keep separating, reuniting, and so on and so forth. In the case of the Achuar, who belong to a tribe otherwise known as the Kivaroans, who, of course, are very well known in the annals of anthropology as a particularly warlike society. So what kind of binding does warfare actually perform in the case of societies such as this? And a host of other questions, the extreme minimalism of their material existence alongside the incredible elaboration of their cosmological representations, shall we say. For non-specialists as, as we are, what can we learn about ourselves studying the Amazonian cultures? Well, when anthropologists go to the field, they don't primarily go to learn about themselves. But in point of fact, any good anthropology is necessarily simultaneously a lesson about ourselves because it puts us at a distance from our own culture. That's the main point, in a sense, of the of the field experience. It, it distances us from our own sort of unspoken premises, assumptions, and so on, even the ones that are most bodily incarnated. For example, in, in a society where there are no chairs, the fact that you have to learn how to sit all over again is just a, a tiny example. You have to give up a lot of your normal, habitual reactions, behavior, uh, ways of acting, ways of thinking, and so on, uh, when you're confronted to a completely different culture. Mm, of course. And um, what about you, Julian? Because you accompanied the anthropologist Marco Antonio Gonçalves for two stays in Brazil in 2016 and 2017, even if I understand that your work with Brazil is, is a long-term project. But so you spent time on the land of a semi-nomadic group called Pihaya. So could you explain to us how you work there and what struck you the most, given that you work at, there as an artist? I went, uh, as you said, with Marco Antonio in 2016 and 2017 to the Amazon and stayed with the Piraha people for two stays of between two to three weeks each. 
it was a, a kind of drift that took me there because I went to do a residency in 2012 in Brazil. I had to propose a, a starting point for my my residency for a project that I would do there. And I just read an article about the Pirahan and the work of an American linguist who's the other person to have studied the Pirahan, Daniel Everett. And I was intrigued, but also confused by what he was saying, not just about the Pirahan, but about language, because I have always been very interested in language and languages. And I had been working on a series of projects on linguistic diversity and all the different forms of variation within a language from regional languages to dialects to slang. There were things that I was re reading about and pursuing in my own work. So I, I went to Brazil. I said that I would try and do a project around the idea of linguistic diversity and specifically in relation perhaps to the Pirahan. And I met Marco essentially to see whether or not there was anything I could do but I had no intention of going to the Amazon uh, at that moment. And uh, we just started a conversation and that conversation became a friendship. And on my end uh, became also a fascination, not just because of what he was telling me about the Pirahan, but also about his way of working with them and the specific type of dialogue that anthropology is, which as Anne Christine said, in a sense, takes place through a process of distancing yourself or taking a distance or being distanced from your own habits, your habits of being, of moving, but also of thinking, of articulating and analyzing. So in 2013, I went back to Brazil. I met with Marco again, and he proposed that I join him to visit the Piraha, but he asked that I do that without any kind of project, without any kind of intention, without planning to do anything, because in his words, I would not be able to imagine what I would encounter there. So that's what I did. Uh, for three years, I applied for different types of funding. I finally obtained the grant by essentially writing that I wanted to accompany him without knowing what I would ever do there or whether I would be able to do anything there. We went in 2016. I traveled the first time in 2015 on the invitation of other researchers that I'd met to another indigenous group, the Mashakadi, in the center of Brazil. And in 2016, I went with Marco to the Pirahan. And when I went there, I realized, even though I had been learning Portuguese, reading as much as I could about the Pirahan, about anthropology, about Amerindian cultures, I realized how little I knew and in fact, how little I knew about the Amazon. What I discovered there was it felt like many worlds, not just the world of the Pirahan, but the kind of um, liminal worlds around them, the worlds of, of the Amazonian cities, the worlds of the people who live in the Amazonian rainforest, but are either not indigenous or of mixed descent or live in different ways. The passenger boats that take you down the big rivers are, in a sense, a world of their own. All that to say that I was guided into this project by an interest in language. I discovered a place, but to be honest, I feel like I'm still coming to an understanding of what the Amazon is as a region, as this sort of series of contiguous worlds. It's interesting how you're both saying that we have to somehow let go of our beliefs and habits and, and ways of... Uh, not only behaving, but thinking to be able to understand 
cultures that are really different from from ours, which is a difficult exercise without doubt. We'd like to move backwards just a little bit to understand a bit more about your personal path, both of you, and what brought you to art for you, Julien, and to ethnology for you, Anne-Christine. So starting with you, Anne-Christine, you said in an interview that your bilingual, bicultural background had had a strong influence on your career path. You also said that as a child, thanks to the books you then read, you were already very drawn to imagining how it would feel to live in someone else's body. So could you tell us a bit more about how your vocation for ethnology <laughs> arose? Yes, it's true that from the earliest earliest childhood, I've always been fascinated by the idea of experiencing Uh, what it's like to be in another body. I remember very well, probably my earliest effort was trying to be a horse, basically. Uh, what it was like, imagining what it was like to have a body like a horse. And then later on, thanks to a lot of juvenile reading, what it was like to be um, a Bedouin, an American Indian, a Plains Indian, this, that, and the other. I I was addicted to disguises, making up and playing endlessly um, around um, the idea that I was someone else. And then it so happens that my father had a lot of anthropology books in the family library because during his war years as an American, drafted in the American army during the war, he had worked in OSS alongside some famous anthropologists like Margaret Mead, uh, Gregory Bateson, uh, Ruth Benedict and others and so on. And so he had their books and I read these without understanding much about them, but uh, they caught my imagination. And and in fact, actually, while I was still in, in secondary school, I was already thinking about taking up an anthropological career. It's true also that uh, coming from a, a bicultural family does immediately make you sensitive to the different, to simply to the fact of cultural difference. And it hones your attention and your interest in what makes cultures or cultural backgrounds feel different and make people act in different ways. And I also, like Julien, had a great interest in languages and I loved sort of pretending I spoke different languages I had a certain facility for languages, and even without actually knowing languages, I would play at speaking it. Uh, I liked the sounds of, of different languages. So all this combined to make me, sort of to put me on the path for an anthropological career. And after that, it, I did my uh, university training in France and um, eventually um, got into a doctoral program. Lili Stos was my thesis supervisor, went to do field work among the Achuar, who greatly attracted both me and my husband, Philippe Descola, because of, of course, anthropologists, although it's, it's not really very politically correct to say so anymore, are still pretty much in the grip of the dream of studying a completely different culture. In a sense, it's a primitivist dream, but it still has its allure, uh, although we wouldn't sort of explicitly admit to it anymore. 
and why particularly these Hivaroan or Chicham people, as they're called nowadays? Uh, well, precisely because of the very strange uh, sociological makeup of this society, uh, who had a very bad reputation as being terribly warlike, a bunch of unreconstructed misanthropists who keep kept fighting each other, hated each other. And uh, of course, the question is, uh, how the hell does that make a society? What keeps these people together, particularly if you consider that they've been in contact with Western civilization ever since the 16th century and have fiercely resisted attempts to convert them and to draw them out of their own culture and into so-called civilization. So this was a, a kind of anthropological mystery, which greatly intrigued us, of course. So I really liked your story about imagining what it would be to be a horse when you were already a, a young child. That's quite fascinating. I just tried to project myself when you were talking about it. And you, Julia, you came to contemporary art via a rather unorthodox trajectory. You studied comparative literature at Princeton University. You also yourself taught literature. So could you tell us what led you to visual arts? Just to go back a little bit further, uh, like I, and Christine, I grew up in a bilingual or multilingual background family because my mother's family is Polish. My father's family is Jewish Tunisian. We moved very quickly. When I was six, we moved to Asia. And so I learned English at a very young age. Actually, very similar to what Christine was saying. When you yourself as a child learn a language at a young age, but with your parents, you can learn things much more rapidly and, and you find yourself, even as a child, serving as a kind of translator for certain situations or idioms to your own parents, not to mention all the other situations in which you're explaining something about France to someone from another country or explaining something about another country that you're living in to someone from France. Um, so that feeling of being in between languages and cultures is, is something I've had I think for as long as I can remember. And it bred in me a fascination for cultural, linguistic, and any other type of difference. And also a, a, a sort of ease at being in between things, in between languages, in between cultures, in between different modes of being or, or doing things. And that translates later into my studies. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a, in a way, much of my life uh, is is uh, directed by a, a type of indecision. I was very much drawn to literature and to visual art when I went to university. And in a sense, I've never chosen to do one or the other. I've chosen to keep doing both. Initially, I, I focused more on visual art as an undergraduate. I then decided to focus more on literature and did doctorate studies in comparative literature at Princeton which drew me further into this world of translations and, and being between languages concretely, because that's what, that's what comparative literature is. And then I, at the end, as I was finishing my thesis, I was pulled back into making art and, and, and simply started becoming, being an artist again and have been doing that ever since. But I think one of the reasons why I chose contemporary art was paradoxically because I didn't have to choose. By doing contemporary art, I could choose to do many things. It's a very open field. 
And um, I was able to forge a practice in which I could navigate between the visual and, and the linguistic, which has always been something I've enjoyed doing in, in both fields, uh, but also between different disciplines, meaning that I could, I could somehow enter into contact with, for example, Marco Antonio, who's an anthropologist, or enter into contact as I had done in other works with a clown or a ventriloquist or a philosopher. And that to me is, I think, one of the main reasons why I eventually decided to settle in contemporary art is because I could remain unsettled <laughs> somehow. We may think that uh, art and anthropology are so distinct and in a way you are sharing a lot. And especially we see very strongly the importance and the impact of literature uh, in both your lives and, and professional choices. And, and this did not happen by accident. Maybe, Julien, can we start with you? The interactions between writing, language and images are at the core of your work. And can you tell us a bit more about this idea of language, why you are so interested in language? And maybe tell us about one project that really embodied this idea and your interest in language. Well, I can, I can talk about the Pidaha project because I really essentially went to meet Marco the first time because I, I wanted to know more. And the only things that were written about the Pidahan were written by this American linguist, Daniel Everett. And I found them frustrating. I found them contradictory. He was saying things like um, the Pidaha have no culture, they have no fictions, they have no metaphor. I couldn't understand how he was making these statements and based on what. I couldn't understand how you could have a language without a, a metaphorical or a fictional capacity or potentiality. When I initially met Marco, I thought I would do a project on the different types of linguistic diversity in Brazil, uh, which was a very overly ambitious project. And the reason for that was uh, very simple. I think the counterpart to this freedom that you have as a contemporary artist to pretty much do whatever you want. You can write a book, you can choreograph a dance, you can make a film, you can make an object, you can make a drawing, you can do nothing, uh, <laughs> literally. Um, the counterpart to that is sometimes it feels like in contemporary art, there's an absence of rigor, not just disciplinary rigor, but the rigor that you have to have when you're in, in front of something else, something that doesn't belong to you, something that is not from your world, something that requires a discipline and, and, and a rigor, yeah, to, to, to simply articulate your experience of that, of that, whether it's a person or a text or a situation. At the time, I, I was seeing a lot of artists doing work with language or about language. There was a sort of turn to poetry at that time in contemporary art. And I, I was very frustrated by the way in which that was being done. In fact, whatever anyone did, it came back to a kind of idea of individual authorship. And what I find beautiful in language is that there is a continuous invention or variation within any given language that belongs to no one in the sense that it either has too many authors or it has no authors. You know, the, the way a language evolves and changes the way a language differentiates itself within its own realm into slangs, into dialects. That, to me, seemed much more interesting and fascinating and enigmatic than hearing about someone's decisions in making a text-based work. 
language can't belong to a speaker. It's more the, the reverse. We belong to the languages we speak. I simply went into this project with the Piraha thinking I would do something about their language, being interested in, for example, their whistled language because their language can be whistled. And I found that, in fact, the deeper I went, the more questions were raised. And by the end, I decided to do something very different, which was to simply bear witness to what I had encountered when I was there, but also to the dialogue or what I had witnessed of the dialogue between them and Marco to, in a sense, this extreme form of translation, translation not just across languages, but across worlds. My only interest in the end, by the time I made actually made a work, was to simply find a way of showing the images I'd filmed uh, without betraying anything of what I had experienced with the intention of raising questions rather than answering them, with the intention not to say something definitive about the Pirahan, but to uh, make people wonder about what they had seen. You certainly achieved that brilliantly in the, in the videos I saw, I must say. To get back just for a minute to uh, the Piraha language and uh, Everett's very, very controversial articles about it, Everett gave an extraordinary negative definition of Piraha language, defining it mainly by what it lacked. And, and this is something that Julien picked up very well. It's an extraordinary ethnocentric and limited view of what language is, because he never raises the question of, he claims, for example, that they have no no color terms, which is crazy in a sense, because of course they use analogic language to talk about colors in very detailed and precise ways. It's not because they don't have a word, a specific uh, lexeme for red, for example, that they can't perceive and distinguish multitude of varieties of red. Simply, they will call them for example, ara breast red, or ara breast simply, or uh, toucan tail, and so on. So forth, referring to what Lévi-Strauss called the logique du concret, precisely, to formulate exactly what they're saying. Same thing goes with numbers. Everett says they have no, no number, not even one or two, which turns out to be wrong in any case. But he doesn't ask the question of, why would the Piraha and other Amazonian groups, for that matter, necessarily have an interest in cardinal numbers? They have, obviously, because that's a cognitive universal, a grasp of relative quantities. But what if you you have a highly synesthetic sense of, of quantity, in which, for example, one is not just a unique thing, it's, it's a quality, and the same thing for two. Two is not just one plus one. Two is a very complicated thing. It's a relation between two things. It can't be a relation between two similar things because that is something that a lot of Amazonians, Indians, simply cannot, in a sense, conceive. And three is something more than just one plus one plus one or two plus one. It's something entirely different and so on and so forth. So instead of trying to figure out what kind of world this would imply, Everett simply said, well, they don't have numbers. This is an extraordinarily sort of impoverishing way of addressing another culture and in particular another language. 
and also a lot of his comments on the peculiar morphological aspects of the fact that there's no recursivity, no metaphor, doesn't take into account the fact that language can be made of a lot more things than just phonemes. Julien mentioned whistling. Onomatopoeia, sounds, can all be pulled into language to express extremely precise things. So again, it's a question of getting rid of what you think is a language in order to admit the fact that there can be very different ways of producing a language which is just as rich as the ones that we're we're familiar with. Now, just a word on the video. I looked at uh, the one called um, I Am Barely a Body several times. In fact, I looked at it once without the accompanying comment. And I think it stood on its own wonderfully, even without the sort of translation furnished in the text that goes along with the image. And I was particularly struck by the extraordinary beautiful and very concise way that Julien conveyed the idea of the instability and precarity of of bodies in the Amazon. That comes through absolutely beautifully, particularly in the in the early scenes. And I was also struck by the fact that by using night scenes filmed in darkness with just flickers of fire and so on, it sort of encapsulates what the Amazonians' perceptual world might be. Because in point of fact, even in daylight, their style of perception of reality is a sort of nocturnal perception mode in which things suddenly flicker from one state to another, can suddenly shift from one shape to another, and, and so on and so forth. And this is something that he conveys very, very well in, in this short video. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> That's very nice to hear. I like that you mentioned, and Christine, in this video, the subtext, because there's this whole idea more widely of the subtext that we sometimes feel we need to add to something that is different from us, to a different culture, because it's so hard to let go of our assumptions that are so ingrained in our own cultures and in our own beliefs. And we'd like to conclude this conversation with a question about the role that you think you as artists and anthropologists have in society, because this is a theme that's at the core of the Arts for Society podcast. And going back to you, Julien, we know that COVID-19 has hit the Amazonian rainforest very badly and that the pandemic has been coupled with a grave environmental crisis threatening the indigenous cultures and more. So do you see yourself more as a witness of the situation there, as you explained through some of the videos you put together? Or do you feel more like a spokesperson or even an activist or maybe both? Well, that's, that's a very complicated question. I wouldn't say that I'm an activist or, or, or anything like that. I, I do feel like different types of activity have different types of efficacy. I don't really think that a work of art can change anyone's political opinions, for example. It's possible, but I, I don't have that as an expectation. There's a very beautiful phrase by a Portuguese filmmaker, Pedro Costa, where he's asked about more or less the same question. And, and he responds by saying that he doesn't feel like his work has a political or, or activist dimension. When he sees a work of art that touches him in that way, it inspires him to want to have a relationship with something in the outside world 
but to want to maybe reimagine that relationship, maybe have it have it take place differently. And I think that's all I can really aspire to as an artist. I can show something, I can bear witness to something, I can pose a kind of riddle, whether visual or textual or both. I can interrogate certain assumptions and I can maybe propose a different angle from which to look at a familiar situation. But I don't think it's a space where I can really do the work that's linked to activism, you know, articulate a political viewpoint, defend it, try to convince people. I somehow don't feel like that's, for me and my work, productive. I think in relation to the Amazon and indigenous groups in Brazil and the people that I've met there and the researchers I've, I've had the good fortune to be able to work with and meet, I try to engage with fundraising initiatives as, as much as I can. I give work or I participate. But what I've tried to do in the work that I've made with this material is simply to try and show something and to maybe produce a kind of awareness, but also hopefully provide a slightly different angle onto these questions. So those are very simple ways of showing something without it feeling like you're, you're saying everything and leaving a large part of the task of interpretation and thinking through the material up to the viewer. And, and that to me feels like the most active and political thing that I can do as an artist uh, to simply encourage people to think on their own. Well, raising awareness and giving a different perspective on things can already be quite a huge eye opener to, to yes. many of us. So that already feels like an important role indeed. And how about you, Anne-Christine? What kind of impact do you think an anthropologist can or should have on society, especially in times of increased isolation and polarization? Well, in a sense, I, I, would, I would happily endorse everything that Julien has been saying. I, I see my role as an anthropologist pretty much in the same light, essentially as a way of opening up a space for imagining different worlds and getting people to pull back a bit from their uh, ingrained ways of thinking and, and habits and so on and so on through the work of translation that that anthropology is basically about. Uh, a famous American anthropologist gave what to me, I think, is probably the best way of defining anthropology. He said, it's all about understanding why our way of misunderstanding, for example, the Piraha, is not the same way as their way of misunderstanding us. In other words, of opening spaces for other imaginative projections. And of course, the fact is that anthropologists, traditionally, it's no longer uh, strictly true nowadays, but uh, traditionally have always worked with people who are oppressed minorities in many cases, and who are deeply worried about the way our world essentially is encroaching upon theirs. So we, we have always worked with very worried people. And of course, we as anthropologists are also congenitally worried people in many ways. So I think this task of conveying worry and opening up imagination is, is probably the main political dimension of, of anthropology. Of course, we also do what we can in a practical way to help these uh, these people when, um, 
for example, in, in the situation of the COVID panic and so on, they're obvious, uh, apart from bearing witness to what's happening to them, alerting world opinion. In the case of Brazil, there's not much use in alerting the government because uh, Jair Bolsonaro's uh, government is hell-bent on getting rid of the Indians rather than on doing anything for them. But in any case, alerting world opinion to what's going on in these situations is necessary part of our role as well. But at a deeper level, I think it's mainly work on imagination that is our, our task. Thank you so much, uh, both of you. I think it was an incredible journey exploring the very close connections that exist between art and anthropology and, and however distinct they may seem. Those disciplines have a lot in common. I really enjoyed hearing you, Julien, talked about how you felt being in between cultures and languages. And you both uh, talked about this idea of being translator with a lot of humility, which I think is very inspiring. And when Anne-Christine, you, you talked about this idea of society with the question of what keeps us together, I think it's, it's very relevant to the question we should ask to ourselves uh, in those times. So thank you so much for opening up other perspectives and helping us uh, imagining different worlds, as you say. It was really great. Thank you so much. Thank you. A great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and listening to this episode of the Arts for Society podcast. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Please subscribe to the Arts for Society podcast to hear our past and future episodes. You can also visit our website www.artsforsociety.com and follow us on social media for more information on our projects. Finally, we want to thank Ralph Barpex for creating the beautiful theme of our podcast. Thank you.